Turn, please, to Mark in chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. I just want to read verses 35 through 37. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. Upon finding that, uh, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and I pray... Lord Jesus, that you would reign over this word in such a way that uh, proves to us of your righteousness and love that causes us to be drawn to you, to turn to you, and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, Father, I pray that this word would be attended by the very power of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 12, verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Now, this particular passage is preceded by... A sentence which in the end of verse 34 says, And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This day had begun with people attempting to show that Jesus was a fraud. The reason the desire was for him to be shown a fraud was because he claimed and by his very actions and words showed the very authority of God. And there were those who were threatened by that, the very religious leaders in Israel, and and they wanted to be the ones to tell the people how to worship. They wanted to be the ones in authority to sit, if you will, in the very seat of Moses. But but Jesus came, and he had had great authority. And thus, the Sanhedrin, the group who represented the power structure in Israel, came to Jesus and said, By what authority do you do these things? How dare you? Speak as you do on behalf of God. How dare you have the, say that you have the authority to forgive sins? How dare you call people to follow you and leave everything else behind? By what authority do you do these things? And that day was spent trying to show that Jesus didn't have such authority. At the end of the day, however, they stopped asking questions, not because they were shy, but because they were defeated. Uh, one group came to him and asked him a political question. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar. Another group came with a theological question. Uh, Tell us about this resurrection from the dead. Another came and said, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered them all in such a way as to silence them. And thus now they stood before Jesus. He had bested, if you will, the field. And now he was entering the field and setting in a very explicit way the agenda because he asked the question. It's the question of identity because, you see, surrounding Jesus was this very question. Is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that has been foretold of old to come and deliver us? There was a great debate about what that actually meant, what it meant for the Messiah, for the Christ to come. Would he be a political deliverer? Would he be a a spiritual emancipator? Which would it be? How would he really come? Who would it be? But but surrounding Jesus was this question. Was Was he really the Christ? So Jesus comes to them with a question. It's rather curious to us because he starts out talking to them about David. 
but, but, but why not? Because you see, David was the great king in their, in their minds. David was the one of David and Goliath fame who stood before this great giant on behalf of the people and defeated this great giant, you remember, with his sling and stone. And thus, his people, the Israelites, were not enslaved by the Philistines, but set free the Philistines enslaved by Israel instead. This great David who expanded the borders of Israel, this great David who, who, who brought prosperity and peace, not utterly, for we see the failures in his own life. So it wasn't complete, but, but yet always in their mind another like David would come because that had been prophesied, that had been predicted, that had been promised really by God. For instance, in Second Samuel and uh, chapter 7 and verse 12, we read this. God speaking to David. He said, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. Then in verse 16, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. They expected that the Christ, this Messiah, would be one like David, who would sit on his throne and rule and reign. In fact, in the Psalms, in Psalm 132, for instance, in verse 11, we read this, The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he would not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. And then the prophet Isaiah comes, and we heard this while we were singing a while ago, this passage of Scripture read to us from Isaiah in chapter 9. Let me just read verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, one's going to come, and it's not going to be the nation of Israel, but a child, a person. And this one person, this one born as a child, will be given to us, this son, and the government will be on his shoulders. That is to say, there will be a rule under him. A, the government will be upon his shoulders. And he has names that are more lofty than even the names given to David. He's given names that are, in a sense, descriptions of God himself. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then he goes on to say, of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. There'll be no end in terms of years. It will continue on and on and on and on. There'll be no end in the context of extent, for it'll go over the whole earth, this one who is to come. And then he says, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So when he comes, yes, they were right in thinking that one would come like David, greater than David, but one like David who would come and rule and reign over all things for the people of God. And he says at the end, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, that is to say, it will happen because God's zeal, God's fervor, God's, if we could say it this way, heartfelt intention is that it would happen. And so all of God, if you will, is brought to bear on this project. It will happen. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And we could find many passages in the Old Testament to say that, yes, one will come like David to sit on his throne and to rule and to reign. And thus, they were right in expecting that one would come to sit on the throne of David and to rule and reign. And so, as, as Jesus is, is speaking to them and 
he speaks to them of David. Of course, this is what they thought that one like David would come. But it's interesting as Jesus was going about his business, this little phrase, son of David, was applied to him. There was a Canaanite woman who had a sick child who came to Jesus and she appealed to him on this basis. She said, son, son of, of David. There were demons that were exercised that referred to Jesus as the son of David. There were those when Jesus spoke with greater authority that said, doesn't the scripture say that the Christ will come from a family of David? There was a blind man, Bartimaeus, by the side of the road that saw Jesus and appealed to him on the basis of this. He said, son of David, when Jesus was coming into to Jerusalem on the day that we call Palm Sunday, people were saying to him, Hosanna to the son of, of David. And so in the air were these these, these two titles, Christ and Son of David, all being applied to Jesus. And now he kind of clears the air. He himself brings up David, the very Son of David. And so he asks this question, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the Son of David? Now, I would expect Jesus to go on and answer his question like this. How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the Son of David? I would think Jesus would say, because that's what the Bible says. Because it's all throughout the Old Testament. They think this because it's been prophesied like this. But, but Jesus, just like Jesus, doesn't do that. He doesn't do what I think he's going to do. He, he, he rather raises another question at the very end. He says, how then can he, that is the Christ, be his son? That is, how can the Christ be David's son? And I want to say, don't confuse them, Jesus. They already think he's the son of David. That's what we want them to think. And of course, it's true that in, according to the flesh, his human nature, he's a son of David. But Jesus has taken that as a given and now moving on to something else. Because notice what he says. How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, that's very significant. This is just an aside. But we understand Jesus to have understood this psalm, and I would suggest to you the whole Old Testament, but we'll just leave it at this psalm. This particular psalm, because that's the context, this particular psalm to be inspired by, expired by the Holy Spirit. So that when David was writing this little, this little verse 1 of Psalm 110 that he quotes, he said that came by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus himself is affirming, is attesting the inspiration of the Old Testament. People ask me, why do you believe the Bible is the word of God? And I sim my simple answer is because Jesus did. Because he did. And so he quotes then from Psalm 110. We'll turn to that in a minute. Don't do it now. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, that is the Christ. How then can he be his son? Well, he can be the son of David according to his flesh, because that's what the Bible says. But now David, that's what the my there is in that first phrase. It refers to David. It's as if to say the Lord said to David's Lord. And this Psalm 110 was understood by everybody to be about the Christ, about the Messiah. And so Jesus says, well, how then can he be David's son and David's Lord only if he be the very son of God the very son of man God with us 
Turn back to this Psalm 110. It says uh, under, in your Bible where it says Psalm 110, it should also say something to the effect of, of David, a psalm. So this is a psalm of David. Jesus affirms that. It's affirmed in the Old Testament as well. The Lord says to my Lord, now you'll notice if you're looking at your Bible, that in most translations, the first word Lord is in capitals and the second word Lord isn't. All right, you with me? Now, the reason the first one's in capitals is that that is referring to the word for God that is I am or Yahweh. Remember when God was with Moses revealing himself and Moses says, what's your name? God says, I am. I would have said, and and you are what? And he would say, yes. And then we get into this whole problem. Now, I am God saying, I'm self-existent. I'm self-determining. I'm exactly what I want to be, when I want to be it, and how I want to be it. Because I'm God. No one determines me. I determine myself. I simply am. Right? That's this name, great name of God. The second word, Lord, is also a name in the Old Testament used for God, but it's simply the word Adonai. And so, there's this sort of uh, intra- Trinitarian discussion going on. The Lord, Yahweh, says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. There is this one who's going to come, who's going to sit at the very right hand of the throne of God and rule and reign. Now you see, David himself anticipated this, understood this, Turn to Psalm number 2 very quickly. Psalm number 2. In verse 6. If you have time, I want to look at a couple of things. Psalm number 2, verse 6. God speaking. This is a psalm, obviously. God speaking. And he says this, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possessions. You will rule them with an iron scepter and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. God is saying that there is one who is going to be installed as his king on his holy hill. We could say heaven itself. And that this one who is installed on this Holy Hill is the very one God refers to as his son. And the inheritance of this son is the nations. In fact, the very ends of the earth is his possession. Okay, you got that? Hold on to that. Turn to Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who, this is a question, think about the answer to this question. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Now in Psalm 2 we read that there was a king that was going to ascend, if you will, to be placed on the hill of the Lord. And this one who would be placed there would be called the son by God. God would call him his son. And the nations would be his inheritance. Who 
may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place. This is the characteristics, verse 4, of the one who can do just that. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Now, anyone, anybody here want to volunteer for that duty? Anybody here want to say, okay, I can, I can go up on the holy hill of God. I have clean hands and a pure heart. And we know that's figurative language and whatever it means, we know it doesn't apply to us. We know clean hands doesn't mean you've been playing in the dirt. Clean hands means you haven't been playing in the dirt. Clean hands means that your hands are pure and everything they touch is pure. And everything they do is right. And yet we know about our lives that isn't true. We know our hands aren't clean. Our hearts aren't pure. We know that we have, in fact, lifted our soul to an idol. When Kim was praying, he referred to that passage about not loving the world. And yet... Who amongst us can say we haven't loved the world and everything in it? Verse 5, He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior, such as the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Uh, to me, that's, that's a rather discouraging piece of information. Because I wonder who then can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who could be this king? Who could be called by God his son? Who is the one to whom the nations will be given? Is there any hope for any of us? And then the psalm twists and turns. And if you're thinking this musically, it, it should start out very slow and quiet and sort of downtrodden. And then by verse 7, it's all of a sudden, lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. That is to say that, 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 that the gates to the hill of the Lord won't be closed forever. He says, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. Why? That the king of glory may come in. There's one who is the king, the one who is the son, the one to whom the nations will be given. He's the very one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who's not sworn himself to an idol. He says, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory, the Lord Almighty? He is the king of glory. Now that's great that there is one, the king of glory, who can enter into the holy hill of God. But you know what? I wonder if that does me any good at all. But it does. You know why? Because he doesn't come empty-handed. Turn to Psalm 68. In verse 18. This is a, another triumphant psalm of David. <clears throat> verse 18 of Psalm 68. When you ascended on high. Uh, uh, we have a theme here developing, don't we? We have the holy hill of God ascending to it. We have ascending to the hill of the Lord who can do that. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You see, when he, uh, when he went to the Holy Hill, he didn't go empty-handed. He didn't go alone. He took his captives with him. He took what he had procured from his battle. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O oh Lord, might dwell there. You see, he's the one who rules and reigns, and he takes with them his, those, the, the spoil of his battle. And who's that? That's all that he's won. We could say it about Jesus like this. That's all for whom he died. That's all of those who would trust in him. All of those that belong to him are in his train. And one old version says he led captivity captive. Yeah, an interesting expression. 
He led those who were, who were in captivity captive. I said, well, if I'm in captivity, why do I need to be captive? I'm already captive. Well, the capturer changes. In captivity to sin and to Satan. Set free. And now one of his captives. And he leads you, us, believers, to this holy hill. Thus we ascend. Why? Because our hands are clean? No, because his hands are clean. Why? Because our hearts are pure? No, because his heart is pure. Why? Because we've never sworn to an idol? No, because he never did. We go in his righteousness and holiness, not in our own. And then David comes to Psalm 110, and he writes then of this one who has ascended, who now is ruling and reigning. And he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations heaping up the, the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. You see, the question of Christmas is, is Jesus the Christ? Is, in fact, he the one who ascended to the holy hill of God? Is he the one who is called the Son? Is he the one whose inheritance is the nations, whose possession is the whole earth? Is he the whole one about whom all of the gates opened wide that he would come? Is he the Lord of glory, the victorious one, the one who brings captives with him? That's the question of Christmas. It's very difficult, very difficult to celebrate Christmas well in America. It just is. It's not that it isn't fun and all of that, and I'm not anti-Christmas stuff. and just. But it's difficult. It's difficult to have more than fun. It's difficult for it to be a real spiritual experience because of all the dissonance, all the other sounds, all the other stuff about which we... we uh, we are, I, I can say this because she's not here, but my daughter brought home a, 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 a girl from college this time for Thanksgiving. Wasn't a, wasn't a Christian. She was from another country. And she thinks Christmas is an American holiday. So we had to de, you know, debrief her on though, this whole notion uh, about Christmas being an American holiday. It isn't an American holiday. And it is. But in our sense, it isn't. That when she came here, it wasn't just to experience an American holiday. It was to experience, we hope, Christmas. We did Thanksgiving first, but we got over that. And then did Christmas. Um, Because that is an American holiday, Thanksgiving. But we did Christmas to try to help see this. That it's not about the presents, it's not about the trees, and it's not about the lights. Those are fun. But unless they point us to something else, they're just simply fun. And so we talked about something else. We talked about this Lord of glory who now rules and reigns. What I want us to do this Advent season is to take this Psalm 110 and to dissect it just a bit. This week, I'm only going to introduce it by taking this verse 1, and I only have a few minutes left to do that. This verse 1 that shows that the Lord of glory, the Christ, rules and reigns in power. 
Then next week I want to take verses 2 and 3 and talk about how he does that. Notice it says that the Lord will extend you. It says you will rule in the midst of your enemies. That's an odd way to rule. Most kings rule by building walls and then ruling in the midst of their friends and try to keep their enemies out. But it's interesting that the Lord of glory, this one who sits at the right hand of God, is going to rule in the midst of his enemies. What does that mean and how will he do it? And verse 3 says he'll have willing troops. So that's next week. Verse 4 then is the week to follow because this one who is the king, the Lord of glory, is also a priest and he rules as a priest and then verses 5 through 7 will occupy us the last Sunday of Advent which tells us that he will rule as judge. Okay, okay. That's, that's not a unique way to break out someone under 10. You could read 100 commentaries and they'll all do it. So don't say, oh, that was a good idea. Um, but that's what we'll do. Now, what I want us to see is that this phrase, that he's sitting, sitting, at, sitting at the right hand, that he's sitting at the right hand um, of this one who is God, the Lord, is very significant. Obviously, in some sense, figurative language, God doesn't have a hand. But to sit at the right hand is to sit in a position of honor, to sit in a position of power, to sit in a position of, of influence to rule and to reign. And to sit doesn't mean he's relaxing. It means he's ruling and reigning. We talk about having a sitting president. Well, that, that refers to the president who's actually the president at the moment. The other presidents, regardless of their posture, are not sitting presidents. We talk about sitting judges. They're the ones who are judging at the moment. The other judges who aren't judging aren't sitting, no matter if they're sitting or not. And so we talk about him sitting doesn't mean that he's relaxing. It means that he's carrying out what a king does when a king sits on the throne, which is ruling. So that's what he's doing. And he's sitting in this position of honor because of what he has done. You understand the progression of Jesus. The progression of Jesus is that prior to his coming, his first advent, the incarnation, he ruled and reigned. But his ruling and reigning at that point in time was to make sure that everything was ready for him to come. So everything that happened before the coming of Jesus in history was in preparation for the coming of Jesus. So he ruled and reigned to make sure that in the fullness of time, as the Bible says, all would be right and all would be ready and he would come. Now he comes in his first advent as a child he's born. He grows up. He lives a perfectly righteous life on our behalf. He takes our sin upon himself on the cross and dies. He rises again. After his resurrection, he ascends. And it's there because of all that he has done that he's given this position now to rule and reign. He ruled and reigned before, but now there's a difference to his ruling and reigning. All that he ruled and reigned about before was to prepare for his coming. Now his ruling and reigning is to execute all that he accomplished in his coming. Do you follow that? Were you listening? That's important. Okay? And so now he's ruling and reigning, and all of his enemies are coming under his feet, even now as he rules and reigns. Turn to Hebrews and chapter 1, and verse 3. In your spare time this week, read Revelation chapter 5. We won't have time to do that. Hebrews 1, verse 3. This 
the sun is the exact radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So even now, Jesus is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus stops that word, all things stop being sustained. If you remember the old existentialist philosopher, French philosopher, René Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am, he was wrong. He should have said, I think, therefore Christ is. Because, you see, we can't think unless Christ is sustaining by his word all that is, even us, our thoughts. That's just a little trivia. Next sentence. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he rules and reigns before he comes to make ready his coming. So as you're reading the Old Testament, everything is in preparation for the coming of Jesus. Creation, the fall, blood, right? Abraham, Moses, the law, the prophets, all getting ready for the coming of Jesus. He comes, he makes purification of sins, and then he goes and sits and rules and reigns. Turn over to Hebrews 10, verse 12. But when this priest, this is a reference to Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So complete is the work of Christ that those who will be saved are referred to as having been made perfect. It's done. But yet we see the ongoingness of the work of Christ because we're now being made holy. So you may ask, how is it that Christ rules and reigns? How does he do that? That's next week, so don't ask that. Ask this. What's he doing ruling and reigning? Well, we sang about it just a few minutes ago. But we sang about it badly. That doesn't mean that the words were wrong or that we didn't sound good. It simply meant, I bet, you breathed in the wrong places and you didn't catch it. Fourth verse, joy to the world. We breathe in the wrong places so we miss the point. He rules the world with truth and grace. We go, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. We miss it. You can't breathe there. I mean, you may have to breathe, but don't. Or you miss the point. Because the point is this. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That's the point. It's all together. He rules the world with truth, his word, and grace, the very power of the Holy Spirit. He rules the world with truth and grace. And in the context of ruling the world in truth and grace, that is the purpose of ruling the world in truth and grace, he's about making everything, all the nations, prove something. And what the nations are proving while he's ruling and reigning and all his enemies are coming under his feet, what the nations are proving is the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Everything, you see, is doing that. Everything is proving the very righteousness of Christ as he rules and reigns. 
when he comes the second time, there'll be no doubt who is righteous and what love is. Because in this time, it will all be proven. And all the enemies of the righteousness of Christ will be shown to be enemies of the righteousness of Christ and conquered in judgment. And all the enemies of the love of Christ will be seen as enemies of the love of Christ and conquered in judgment. But you see, there was a time when Christ proved his righteousness and love, and that is on the cross. And in our very lives now, you see, the very righteousness and love of Christ is proven as well. And so whatever takes place, whether someone is lost or whether someone is saved, whether a tragedy occurs or a miracle happens, the righteousness and love of Christ is proven. After the World Trade Center was destroyed by terrorism, no one would look at that or few and say that's righteous. It isn't. And it will be proven to be even more so throughout the, the days, the very unrighteous acts. And when we look even in our own culture, in our own lives, we see unrighteousness for what it is in the context of our tempers, in the context of our greed, in the context of our materialism, in the context of our injustice, in the context of our hatred, in the context of our sin, in the context of our unbelief. All of these are being proven even now by Christ in his ruling and reigning as unrighteous and unloving. And thus everything that we see we realize is proving the greatness, the righteousness and love of Christ. And when a person comes to faith, when we come to faith, when we believe, it proves the very righteousness and love of Christ because we see in a very, our own salvation the work of Christ's righteousness because we depend upon him and we say, he's the righteous one. He's the one with the clean hands. He's the one with the pure heart. He's the one who never swore falsely to an idol. And thus we trust in him and it shows his righteousness and it also reveals his tremendous love to save us. And so we walk around, believers in Christ, walk around as those in our very lives who prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. And he calls us to believe. He calls us to trust in him. And you remember, right before he made purification for sins, he met with his disciples. He knew what was going to take place. He was talking with them about it. And he gave them a sign in the context of a meal that would help them that would bolster their faith, that would enable them, cause them to think upon him. And you remember that on that night, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup. And after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. What would they remember? About what would they think 
of whom would they think? No doubt the fact that he made purification for sins. No doubt that he rose from the dead. No doubt that he ascended into heaven. No doubt that he presently sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Right now that all of his enemies are becoming his footstool because he's ruling and reigning. And no doubt that everything under the rule of Christ proves the glories of his righteousness, the wonders of his love. Because you see, there's no way to think of the cross, there's no way to think of what Christ did without thinking of his righteousness. Because we see in the cross the very holiness of God that he cannot look upon sin without judging it and saying, this is what sin deserves. And yet we think of the righteousness of Christ as purity. And yet why him? And as Luther struggled so much with Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Luther said, how could this be? How could God forsake the righteous son? And then he realized the father was forsaking the son, not because of the son's sins, but because of ours. And in that he saw the righteousness and the love of God. He rules and reigns. And we take great confidence, great assurance that our sins are forgiven because he sits, because his work on earth is done. And now he sits and rules and reigns from heaven, making sure that everything that he accomplished is brought to fruition. And we have assurance then when we pray because the one to whom we pray rules and reigns and nothing can stop him. We have confidence when we tell other people about Jesus that he rules and reigns in truth and grace. And thus our words may very well be productive, profitable, powerful because of him. And when we're frustrated and when we're dismayed by all the things that we see and all the things that go on in the context of the world and even in the context of our own lives, still there's hope. Why? Because we know that the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father is ruling and reigning in all his enemies. My temper, my impatience, my lack of compassion, my lack of love, my unforgiveness. Those enemies of the righteousness and love of Christ are becoming under his feet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, even now as we think upon the work of Christ, I pray that you would set apart this bread and this juice in such a way as to cause us to meditate, cause us to think upon the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the very one who rules and reigns. And as we would always know that he does rule the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Father, even now I pray that you would enable us to focus our attention there on the ruling and reigning Christ so that our faith would increase. Lord Jesus, I pray that you meet us here to strengthen our faith in you, that we may walk reflecting your righteousness and love. And I pray this in Jesus' name.